Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice with your host, Rocky Deer. Hi, and welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast. So a client walks into your office with his mother and tells you that he needs help drafting her will. Who will be the primary beneficiary of your mother's estate, you might ask him. His reply, my mom. Now, there was a time when this scenario would sound like some kind of riddle, a trick question, if you will. But there will come a day when a story like this will play out without the lawyer giving a second thought. Obviously, this client has two mothers, two members of a same-sex marriage who had a son together. Oh, and one of the moms is the client's biological father. 20 years ago? Eh, Maybe a little zany. Today, completely within the realm of possibility. Arguably, we are in the nascent phase of an era of same-sex marriages, at least in Texas, but after the U.S. Supreme Court's landmark decision in Obergefell in 2015, the day will likely come when such relationships will be readily recognizable. As lawyers, are we fully prepared to serve clients in the LGBTQ plus community? Now, you might be thinking, Rocky, I, I do work with corporate clients. This doesn't affect me. Okay, but now what if a trans person from that company needs help with a contract or a will or a marital contract? Do you know how to draft documents that take gender transition into account? Or do you at least know what questions to ask so that you can find the right referral for that person? Elizabeth Brenner is a name partner at Burns, Anderson, Jury, and Brenner in Austin, where she specializes in probate and trust litigation, probate administration, and guardianship law. Liz is the author of Estate Planning and Probate for Same-Sex Couples, an article in the February 2023 Texas Bar Journal. For lawyers who want to evolve and adapt to societal and business changes, I highly recommend reading this article, but even better, we have Liz here with us to offer some insights and discuss some of the issues that the article covers. So Liz, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. What a pleasure to have you in. So look, let's just, let's just jump right into this. All right. So when did you first realize that the legal community might be a bit ill-equipped or, or maybe just uninformed about the specific needs of LGBTQ plus clients? Well, these are evolving issues. Um, As you mentioned, the Obergefell decision in 2015 changed things dramatically in the legal landscape. So I think it's something that is requiring, you know, ongoing mm-hmm. information and education. It's a ongoing education process for me since the laws have changed so much in the, since I've been licensed. So it's an ongoing, evolving process for, I think, all the lawyers out there. So was it when the decision came out that you first kind of said, hey, this, this could have some issues or did it take a little time for it to kind of germinate a little bit? So I I have been working on LGBTQ related legal issues since uh, I I graduated law school in 2003. Obviously, uh, marriage equality ruling had um, a a huge impact on the legal issues and the legal landscape. So I think at that time, um, there was a stark change in the laws that required a better sense of all the lawyers out there. I, I know in Texas, the issue of same-sex marriages is maybe not as evolved as it was in some of the other states where it was allowed earlier, you know, states right. like, say, New York. Mm-hmm. So are we borrowing a lot from those other states, or are we kind of creating our own set of rules and our own set of laws as we move forward? So the, the laws are essentially, in terms of marriage, um, sure. are universal across the country in that all states have to recognize same-sex marriage on the same terms 
sure. and conditions as um, heterosexual marriages. So the laws in Texas that apply to opposite sex couples are and should be exactly the same as that applied to same-sex couples. And because, you know, marital laws are differ widely, differ sure. from state to state, it would sure. be a little different in Texas than in other states. Now, it, it maybe educate us on, on, on how this played out prior to the decision. And I, yeah. you know, I, I'll tell you as an aside, I don't know if, is it Obergefell or Obergefell? I, I've heard it several different ways. And at some point I'm just going to say Bob, because I have no idea how, yeah. how to pronounce it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I think that's a valid question. I pronounce it Obergefell, but I've also heard it said many different ways. So okay. I'm just going right. to continue to say Obergefell. Obergefell. All right. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to make sure I, I do this consistently. If not, it'll be inconsistent. And that's okay, because people do that with my name all the time. So, you know, when it, when it comes to the issue of full faith and credit for marriages, mm-hmm. before Obergefell, how was Texas treating same-sex marriages that happened in other states? It wasn't. Texas did okay. not recognize same-sex marriages at all until okay. it was forced to in 2015 by the Obergefell ruling. Okay, so now, in fact, it was written into our constitution that mm-hmm. same-sex marriages are not to be legally recognized. And now, as a result of the federal ruling, it's it's something that that has to be done from a constitutional perspective. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Now let's talk about clients who might not be familiar with LGBTQ plus clientele. As a lawyer, could I not just refer out all? LGBTQ plus clients and say, Hey, I'm not going to worry about this. You know, call Liz Brenner and she'll take care of you. I have no idea how to deal with you. Is, is that not a solution? I mean, why should, why should we be, why should we educate ourselves in, in how to, how to address those issues? And I'm saying that a bit tongue in cheek, of course, yeah, but yeah, sure. I, I'd, I'd like to get your, your thoughts on why, why you think all lawyers need to be more aware of this, this particular client base. If you look at just laws on marriage. It is so integrated to every part of our lives and the legal landscape um, that it impacts all areas of the law. So if you, for example, practice insurance defense, a marital relationship impacts who potentially your clients are and your clients' legal rights. If you do uh, real estate litigation, obviously marriage impacts the rights of a couple to a piece of property. Um, if it was community property, it was separate property. It basically impacts all areas of the law because marriage itself has so many benefits and rights and obligations under state law and federal law. Even if you just talk about LGBTQ rights in, with respect to marital relationships, it impacts um, and affects so many areas of the law that you need to have some understanding of how it works for people who are LGBTQ. When we come back, we're going to talk a bit more about LGBTQ plus clients and how best we as lawyers can address their needs. And we're going to get a little bit more into that. First, we're going to hear from one of our sponsors. So we'll be back with Liz Brenner in just a couple of seconds. The Texas Lawyers Assistance Program provides confidential help for Texas lawyers, law students, and judges who have problems with substance use and mental health issues. TLAP offers 24-7 confidential support and can connect you to peers and providers for assistance. TLAP can also connect you to the Sheeran Crowley Lawyer Wellness Trust, which provides financial help to Texas lawyers, law students, and judges who need treatment for substance use, depression, and other mental health issues but can't afford to pay for services. Call or text TLAP anytime at 1-800-343-8553. 
1-800-273-8827. And we're back. We're back with Liz Brenner talking about how we as lawyers can better serve LGBTQ plus clients. Now, Liz, I know you work primarily in the in the estate planning and estate litigation and probate context. But in your article in the Texas Bar Journal, you talk about common law marriages and the specific the specific issues that might arise for same-sex couples when it comes to common law marriages. Can mm-hmm. you can you elaborate a bit more on that? Tell us tell us how that impacts that community more than it does opposite sex marriages. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think there are two pieces of that that are relevant for the state of Texas legal landscape, particularly. One is the community property regime in Texas, and the second is common law marriage in Texas. So because we have common law marriage, uh, meaning that um, you know a couple can be married through an informal process of meeting the requirements of living together as spouses, holding out as spouses, and agreeing to be spouses, mm-hmm. that can actually create a marriage that is retroactive from the time of marriage equality. So essentially, common law marriages can exist mm-hmm. prior to the Obergefell ruling in 2015. So couples, many same-sex couples have been together 10, 20, 30, 40 years, long before mm-hmm. you know, it was a legal possibility to be married in Texas. But they, you know, live their lives just like any other married couple and could probably meet the elements of common law marriages. Uh, Many same-sex couples had um, ceremonies prior Mm -hmm. to marriage being, you know, legally recognized. And so if they met those elements, even though it was prior to the Obergefell ruling, it is possible to establish a marital relationship going back to the time in which they met those elements of common law marriage. My constitutional law is is admittedly a bit rusty, but mm-hmm. I thought there was a provision that says you can't have ex post facto laws. And so wouldn't w- wouldn't that kind of step in to say, hey, you know, th- th- you had no rights prior to Obergefell. Now suddenly there's these rights. So we can't go and impose common law marriage on you since since that didn't exist in Texas prior to the decision. So my understanding is that laws that violate the Constitution are void ab initio. They're okay. void from the start. So if that is the case, and um, mm-hmm. many courts have ruled that it is the case, um, even with regard to same-sex marriage, then that marital relationship could have started prior to 2015 because that law that stated um, same-sex marriages were not recognized has always been unconstitutional. That's interesting because now you've got, it's it's almost like you could, members of the LGBTQ plus community might actually, in theory, be arguing against the imposition of common law marriage under the ex post facto clauses. And then you might have opponents of same-sex marriages coming out and saying no, because it's ab, you know it was void ab initio. So it, it'd be interesting to see if the sides kind of switch on that particular legal issue. That would be... I think that would be kind of fascinating and, and maybe entertaining from a really nerdy perspective. But it's it, it, that's interesting because I guess as I'm thinking through it, and this is this is a fascinating discussion. If it was void ab initio, but as a same-sex couple, you weren't aware of it and you didn't know you had those rights, then can the obligations of a common law marriage be foisted upon you? I don't expect you to answer the question. I would just be interested to know your thoughts on that. Yeah, I'm sure it's come up within the context of divorce. 
among sure. couples. I mean, the common law marriage certainly comes up within the context of divorce among heterosexual couples. Sure. Um, one member of the relationship could say they were married by common mm -hmm. law. Um, the other says they were not. Now the law applies the same, both to opposite and same sex. So um, it certainly can come up, and I'm sure it has come up many times mm -hmm. within the context of a divorce among same-sex couples. In your article, you actually talk a bit about a same-sex couple, the scenario at least is, a same-sex same couple gets married after Obergefell, but it turns out one of the members, or maybe both of the members of the marriage, had relationships prior to the marriage that might become, or might be deemed common-law marriages. And now suddenly their, their now legally recognized same-sex marriage is void because it turns out they had a common-law marriage prior to getting married to this other person. That was what really kind of fascinated me. You know, have you seen this occur? Is this something that that has actually arisen in your practice? And, you know, or or is this right now still kind of in the realm of possibility that we're gearing up and getting prepared for? So um, some states, not Texas, but other states mm -hmm. prior to Obergefell and prior to the state providing marriage um, for all couples um, had domestic partnerships or civil right. unions, which was sure. a regime in which um, right. they provided some benefits of marriage, but not marriage. Um, mm -hmm. And um, some of those states, when they legalized same-sex marriage, they automatically converted those relationships to marital relationships. And okay. if people didn't dissolve them and then later remarried, there might be some legal complications there. But as you said, that doesn't occur in Texas. Because no, we didn't te have that um, Texas does not, has not, and will, uh, has not ever recognized any civil unions or common law marriages. But if someone was living out of state right. and uh, that circumstance took place, it could be potentially complicated. The conversion from civil unions to marriage. And then they moved to Texas, there could be a potential complication. That, that raises another interesting legal issue, because if it's in the Texas Constitution that you don't recognize a same-sex marriage, but now you have to give full faith and credit, prior, prior to Obergefell, there was no full faith and credit, so Texas didn't recognize a civil union, but now suddenly Texas has to recognize a civil union for purposes of enforcing the civil union, even though these people got married in Texas in order to convert, in order to actually have a marriage under the law. It, 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 I can see this becoming very con complicated and convoluted. Have you, have you come across these issues in your own practice or are we, are we sort of bracing for that, for the day when that occurs? Yeah. So there's one piece of that that I just want to clarify. So it's yeah, the please. conversion of civil union or domestic partnership to marriage sure. by the state, let's say the state of Washington automatically okay. converted. And once that happens, it is a marriage. And because of full freight, the credit, Texas has to ah, recognize okay. that marital relationship, but Texas does not have to, nor does it recognize something that is just a civil union or domestic partnership. Okay. So as a matter of Texas law, these people, this couple was not married until Obergefell came out and said, and, and then that other state has had, I guess, what you call trigger laws. As soon as Obergefell happened, yeah. they said, you're now married and no longer in a civil union. Now Texas has to give full faith and credit. So that's the mechanics Correct. of how yeah. this how this plays out. Okay, this is I'm glad we're having this discussion because I don't know a lot of that a lot of these mechanics. I don't know there was enough room to to kind of explain all this in your article, but this is 
this is interesting. I'm, I'm learning a lot. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, is- it's, it's super interesting. It could potentially be quite complicated. Um, you have to sort of trace the relationship history of the client in order to make sure that none of those issues come up. Let's talk for a moment in a same-sex marriage now, now that it's a full, a full marriage under the law. How do you handle, and, and, and if you've not handled this in your, in your own practice, or you're not familiar, then, then you know, forgive me. But from a family law perspective, how would you advise clients to establish a parent-child relationship? And what I'm thinking of here is maybe one member of the couple is a biological parent, actually gave birth to the child. The other one is, is wanting to be a parent, but they're not the one that actually gave birth. There's no DNA involved. Mm-hmm. Maybe you have a second scenario where there's some kind of surrogacy, you know, and, and, and then a transition to a different sex, or you've got a situation where they're both adopting. Mm-hmm. And in, in that situation, how would, in, especially now that we've got a marriage involved, how do you make sure that both members of the couple have equal rights when it comes to child custody and can, can be treated fairly under family law? Yeah, that can be a little complicated, but... Sure, um, I imagine. That's why I'm asking you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, what I would do is um, the non-biological parents would have to adopt the child. And at that point, once the adoption is complete, they would have all the rights of, you know, any other parents. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the adoption process or the question of adoption can become interesting when one parent is using mm-hmm. the egg of another parent sure. to give birth to the child. Right. So at that right. point, it can be a little complicated. Um, I don't handle those kinds of situations. Um but it's always necessary for a same-sex couple to ensure that both parents have legal rights as parents, and that could require, and usually requires, the non-biological parent to adopt. But then I wonder, and this, this might become an interesting question, I'm not expecting you to, to have the answer to this, but as a matter of Texas family law then, you know, you, you've got an adoptive parent and a biological parent, both of whom have custody and rights over the child, but in the event of a divorce where the, where the same-sex couple separates, then I, it, it'd be interesting to see, will the Texas courts apply a simple you know, best interest of the child analysis, or will they give preference to the biological parent as a matter of law? And I don't know if you've, if you've heard anything or if you've come across that question, but I'd be very curious to see how Texas family courts handle that issue. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I don't practice family law, so I don't haven't come across that. But um, once an adoption takes place, that parent is supposed to be treated just like any biological parent, technically. So I, right. would, just, I would hope that that's how they were treated by any court of law. I, I would agree. This, 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 this might be another article that, that <laughs> perhaps a family law practitioner can weigh in on. So you know, Texas Bar Journal, if you're listening, we need a follow-up to this on from a family law perspective. Now, we're going to be back in just an, in just a couple of minutes. We're going to talk when we come back with Liz about transgendered clients. And your article, I know Liz talks about that a bit. We're going to dive a little bit more deeply into that. But first, we're going to hear from another sponsor. So sit tight. We'll be right back. And we are back with Liz Brenner. We are learning everything about LGBTQ plus clients and what I think we as lawyers just don't seem to fully grasp yet. So in your, in your article for the February 2023 Texas Bar Journal, you talked not just about same-sex marriages. You also talked from an estate planning perspective about transgendered clients and some of the issues that 
they might face that a lot of us might not be aware of. Reading your article, I, I had I had to kind of think to myself because you talk about you talk about pronouns and changing pronouns for somebody who might have gone through a gender transition. First of all, let's talk about why why you believe the pronouns are important from an estate document perspective. Yeah. So when we're drafting estate documents, one of the things we're doing is thinking about possible problems down the road and drafting with that in mind to avoid those problems that could come up. You mean like a will contest, like that kind of problem? Exactly. Any sort of litigation down the road that could come up because the will is ambiguous or doesn't properly identify the beneficiaries. And within that sort of framework um, and talking about LGBTQ clients, one thing to think about are those clients that are transgender or those clients that have transgender children or family members who they intend to give something to. Ah, okay. And so to avoid any potential problems that are, arise, sure. um, it's important to properly identify people in your will. So if um, you gift everything to Harry, um, mm-hmm. who is your son, and Harry becomes Harriet, right. and the will identifies Harry uh, when you die, there is a potential problem that might need to be clarified by a court, and we want to avoid that at all costs. So you update your will so that you properly identify, in this scenario, um, your child. Or uh, the other circumstance is if you are hairy and you're leaving everything to whoever and you transition. Um, you have a different name, a different pronoun. You want to make sure that your will reflects the updated information, just like you would update your will through time as your life changes. Now, wouldn't the courts be able to determine that, okay, in 2023, you know, th- this will was drafted in 2023, and it's referring to a beneficiary named Harry. And then at some point down the road, Harry is able to, Harriet is able to prove that she was Harry in 2023. Is that not a simple function in the probate courts, or, or does is there a is there a pretty real possibility of that getting gummed up and and causing a lot of consternation to the parties? Yeah, the hope would be in that scenario, it would be a simple way. There would be a simple way to address it in court. Um, mm-hmm. However, when parties fight, which is happens, um, that could be right. another <laughs> issue to fight over. Sure. Um, and you because you want to avoid having any issue with your will having to be interpreted by a court because there is a potential for a conflict there, you want to make sure and update it so that it's not an issue or a potential issue and quite clear in your will. For, for transgendered clients who are writing their wills, so you know when you want to update your will later, and, and what I'm thinking about here is just the expense involved. If, you, if you've gone through the transition, mm-hmm. you went from Harry to Harriet, and now you have to pay a lawyer to go back and fix everything. You know, that, that's not cheap. It's, it's a real, that's real money being spent. Do we not have a simple document or form for transgendered clients to be able to, you know, maybe use it to amend their wills and make it really simple, something that they can just, you know, fill out as a pro forma saying, all right, I was Harry Smith, now I'm Harriet Smith. And everything that, that refers to Harry is now Harriet. Is there, is there no, no way to do that currently under Texas law? So Texas law does allow for a codicil. So you could okay. draft a codicil to your will. But um, wills these days are in Word documents drafted. Right. And those are easy to update. Um, sure. And rather than having 
20 codicils to a will, it's generally easier just to update the Word document and sign it. So you just, and, and so I assume that doesn't take too long for you as the estate lawyer to draft up for them. It generally depends on the nature of the changes, but if you're just changing a name, no, okay. it shouldn't take too long. For, for the clients themselves, if somebody is coming in from a legal standpoint, do they get to choose their pronouns or is there a definition or maybe a, a standard of practice for how you determine a client's pronouns for estate documents? For those yeah, purposes. that's a great question. Um, I think the pronoun question is evolving. Um, sure. But what I do is I just ask a client if it's not readily clear from our initial conversations or what the initial information they provide me, if I'm not clear about it, Sure. Um, I just ask and um, uh, clients are more than happy to clarify. Now, but if Harry comes in and says, look, I identify as female, and I'm planning on going through the transition, I identify as female. So I'm, I'm Harry Smith. I want my pronoun to be she or hers throughout my documents. Mm-hmm. As an estate planning lawyer, are you, do you feel comfortable putting that in there? Or do you, do you make a specific declaration in the will that Harry has preferred pronouns? How do you, how do you do that to make sure that you avoid confusion down the road for somebody who may not know Harry? Yeah, that's a great question. So I haven't come across that yet. So let okay. me think about what I might do. I I think every attorney might handle it differently, but I would want to be clear in the document uh, uh, so that courts or third parties wouldn't be confused. And that's what I would recommend, that until there was a um, a formal legal change, I would keep it personally. This is just me. I would keep the pronoun that is illegally accurate. Okay. Now th- that that brings up another question that I, I I thought this might be this might be something that a lot of lawyers might be confused about and mm-hmm. honestly I don't know that there's an answer but I wanted to get your thoughts on this is there either a legal or a medical standard for when a person's biological sex has officially changed I'm thinking about people that are currently in transition so there yeah. you know Harry comes in Harry's about to start the transition Harry dies in the middle of the transition now. When did Harry become Harriet or has Harry become Harriet? That, that becomes a potential question. And has Texas law got any kind of, I I don't know that there'd be a solid answer, but is there anything that gives us some insight into how to handle that transition question? That's such an interesting question. Obviously from a medical perspective, um, I have no idea, (laughs) but from a legal perspective, I would expect you would need the legal documents that has the official court order that changed the gender marker from previous gender to a uh, new gender. I guess presumably then under that, until you get that court order, the biological at birth gender would continue to apply. I would expect you... so. Okay. All right. That, that, at least, that, that at least gives me some comfort in knowing that there's, there's something that, that you can use as, as, as some kind of a marker. Cause that was when I was reading your article, I thought, how, how do you know when that happens? But it sounds like there's, there's at least something that we can rely on as practitioners when, when faced with that issue. Yeah. Yeah. But like I said before, I think those are, that is one of the things that is evolving. So I would, I would be curious to know how that plays out. I imagine that um, there's many arguments to be made that you don't need a court order Sure. Um, for that to be the case. 
A lot of interesting questions. Your article raised, I think your article raised more questions than it answered. And that's a sign of a great article. So Liz, I, I want to, you know, we are out of time for today, but this, this sounds like something that, that we are going to be hearing a lot more of in the coming months and years. So I, I want to thank you for taking the time for the time to join us. And I also want to thank you for, for bringing this issue to all the Texas lawyers through your article. So, you know, again, thank you for being here and thank you for, thank you for bringing this front and center to our attention. Yeah, thank you. It was a lot of fun. And of course, I want to thank you for taking time to tune in. And I want to encourage you to stay safe and be well. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, remember, life's a journey, folks. I'm Rocky Deer, signing off. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Go to TexasBar.com slash podcasts. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the State Bar of Texas, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.